Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode number 161. I am your host, Mark Shapiro, and my guest in this episode is Dr. Narjust Duma. And NJ is an oncologist at the University of Wisconsin Carbone Cancer Center, and she specializes in lung cancer in women. She is here to help us with an issue that she has expertise around that is both scholarly and hard won. She comes on Explore the Space to talk about unconscious bias and microaggressions. It's a sensitive topic. It's a really important topic. It's something that we are all prone to, and it's something that has a really powerful impact on those who are subjected to unconscious bias and microaggressions. NJ does a really nice job of walking us through what the definitions are, the examples of how this happens, how easily it can happen, and the impacts that these things can have as well. She comes with an honesty and a candor and also a really wonderful sense of humor that just informs a fantastic conversation around a topic that's becoming more and more part of our opportunity to learn, to get better, and to be accountable. Before we get to the conversation, I want to invite everyone to please come to the Explore the Space podcast website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. We have just done a big overhaul. We've added a search field where you can go and search by keyword or by guest, and you'll find all of the content. You can go to the podcast page, which you can go by clicking the subscribe now link on the homepage or click on the podcast tab. You'll see all of the episodes are now categorized, not just in our four pillars, but by all sorts of different content topics like gender equity, climate change, leadership, gun violence. There is a whole slew of different things. It's another way for us to categorize our content. I think you're going to really like it. It's also a great way to share the show. If there's people who are enjoying specific themes, you can just pluck that one link and it's got the whole archive. So I'd really encourage everyone to go and take a look. There's also our white papers there. There's a whole host of other resources. You can also find my social media feeds on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm very active on Twitter at ETS show. Definitely come join me there. You can find me on Instagram as well at explore the space show. Remember, you can always email me if you have ideas or recommendations or feedback, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And then finally, please do take the opportunity to subscribe to Explore the Space wherever you like to download your podcasts. I'm on iTunes, Spotify, you name it, you can find us there. And if you have the opportunity to leave a rating interview, I know I say this with every episode, it really helps the show out. It's one of the most powerful drivers that podcast platforms use to drive and to elevate shows. So if you have the opportunity to leave a rating and a review that really helps the show out. We are coming up on the end of the year and the end of the decade. We have two more episodes for this year after this one, but this conversation with Narjus Duma is really, really wonderful. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So without further ado, Dr. Narjus Duma. Narjus, thank you so much for coming on Explore the Space. Welcome. Thank you so much, Dr. Shapiro, for inviting me. First things first. Uh, in this space, in any space, you can refer to me as Mark. Please do not refer to me as Dr. Shapiro. That's my dad or my grandpa. And we're going to talk about this. You know, after the paper, I just, I go safe with doctor and then I change it. 
if people told me to. I'm, so. I'm right there with you. I went to a very, <laughs> I went to a very formal medical school, so I always err on the side of doctor. But you giving me permission to call you NJ, you have my permission to call me Mark, and so let's go from there. Sound fair? Yes. All right. Good. I love that we had a little time to talk before we started the show. And as I mentioned, right, my dad or my grandfather is Dr. Shapiro. I'm a third generation physician. You're a fourth generation physician. Yes. That's fantastic. It's- so tell me a little bit about the DNA in your family that that's brought you to be a fourth generation physician. Because that's got to be like 200, 250 cumulative years of medicine practice or something. Yeah, so my great-grandpa didn't have a specialty. You know, he delivered babies and treated pneumonia and TB. There's no specifics there. My grandpa was an OBGYN who delivered hundreds of babies, and my grandma was a pediatrician. Wow. Um, my grandma was the first uh, single woman to go to her medical school, uh, which carries a lot of weight back then because everybody, well, the five women in her medical school, they're all, the other four were married and she was single, so... That was challenging for her. And then my dad and my mom are both surgeons and they met in medical school. Holy cow. So where? So it was your grandmother was the first single woman to attend her medical school? Yes, back in Colombia, yeah. That's amazing. Did she, yeah, did, did she write the, the memoirs? Did she keep anecdotes? Did she tell you stories? Well, the stories are horrible. Yeah. She didn't write a book. She should have. But it's the whole thing that she was single and she wanted it, right? The wow. whole she encountered a lot of harassment, um, but that made her very strong. She's made out of steel. So, yeah, it was different times than right now. And then my mom going through the whole surgery field back in the '80s was also difficult for her. But my mom's stories are not as horrible as my grandma's, I have to say. Did it feel preordained for you to go into medicine or did you feel like you had a nice big playground to decide what you wanted to do and you settled on medicine? So the funny part is that I think my parents didn't really want me to be a doctor. It was the whole talk about like, oh, I want to be a doctor. My my father is like, well, I'm from Venezuela. So before the country imploded, being an oil engineer was like, you know, the job because you work for oil companies and then big oil companies kind of recruit you from Venezuela and people just go and work in these very exotic places. Um, but they work Monday to Friday, right? So sure. I, I think my, my parents were like, oh, you can, you're very smart. We, we, you're, I was very good at chemistry. You should like consider doing that. But at the end, I think they just gave up and it's just like, whatever. <laughs> but after I decided to be a doctor, my parents wanted me to be a surgeon. Okay. And they were very set on that. My mom wanted me to be a plastic surgeon. And my dad wanted me to be a cardiothoracic pediatric surgeon. Talking about specifics. Wow, that's some deep subspecialization. I know. I was a first-year medical student, and my dad was like, you should be a pediatric CT surgeon. Well, that, like, that's interesting that it was only once you went into medicine that they started to make some suggestions. I had a similar experience. My grandfather's a physician. My dad's dad, he's passed. My dad is a physician. He's now retired. He was a nephrologist. 
And my parents wanted me to, you know, find my own path and figure out what I wanted to do. And I felt like I came to medicine on my own. But once I got into it, it was definitely like, Mark, nephrology is pretty cool. You should think about being a kidney doctor. Nephrology, <laughs> what, what do you think? About, are you enjoying your physiology? Hey, what, what do you think about transplant rounds? It was like, <laughs> I got you that. And I actually almost did. Uh, I really, really liked it. But I really wanted to just I wanted to stay in the hospital and, and I really enjoyed my hospital medicine rotations, but it's funny how it sort of starts once you make the plunge, then, <laughs> then the parents want to get in. I know. And then I remember calling my dad. I was at MS3, almost four. And I'm like, dad, I'm going to be an oncologist. And then my dad is like a surgical oncologist, right? I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> and then my dad was like, sure, this is a rotation you like that we just, Issue pass, right? Yeah. And I went to my surgery rotation and I was like, I need to go back to, and I used to go back to like the cancer center just to like get in, be with my patients with cancer. And then I called my dad again. He's like, no. And I, I think my dad still wakes up in the middle of the night and he's like, no, she didn't went into medicine. <laughs> <laughs> he's waiting for you to say, I'm going back to do some, to do a surgical residency. And after I gra- so then I'm in internal medicine at Rutgers. And yeah. then my dad is like, so, okay, you're in medicine. So are you going to do one of the specialties with procedures like GI? Or- <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny too? As, as I'm hearing you say this, everyone that's listening to the show whose parents are physicians or anyone who went into the same profession as their parents, they're all experiencing a lot of counter-transference right now, I'm sure. They're all going, oh, I remember when this happened and that happened for sure. Yeah, and you know, there's this thing going in social media that a doctor is called and and the and the plane and oh, the yeah, father stays on this back. Yeah. So I was trying to think about my dad and me in that situation. I'm pretty sure it was like, is there a doctor in, in the plane? And then my father would say, kind of going into <laughs> oh, <no>. November. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Oh no. You go get this on Pembro and then make the DNR DNI. <laughs> oh, no. Did you put that one on Twitter or no? No, but I really imagine that's what my dad would say completely. Go oh, and get this on Pembro and make the DNR DNI. Yeah. I think my parents probably say, are you going to go record a podcast with them or something like that? <laughs> it's, it is interesting, though, how much that sort of – it just, it doesn't stop completely. You know, my parents, they're happy that I do what I do and all of that. But there's, I, I do sometimes wonder if there, you know, did I fulfill the vision my parents had for me? And I think we all kind of have to just work through that at our own pace and, and in our own way. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole joke that you can never please your abuelita. That's like your grandmother. Yeah. She loves you, but you are too skinny or too fat. <laughs> you have. One boyfriend or old, he doesn't like the boyfriend. So there is no way to please your abuelita. Oh, no. Well, yeah, so. it, it's it's part of the journey that we do. And, and, and I will say this. You and I connected on social media. You and I are in that category of we've never met in real life. Hopefully that will, will change someday where we'll get to cross paths at a conference or something like that. But what I've enjoyed about being able to meet and interact with so many other talented people from so many other professions and specialties within our profession is learning about these incredible skills and the diverse experiences that we all have. And I feel like you have carved out a really important space that for me has been a really important learning opportunity. And it's 
in bringing forward a term that is one that I'm trying to as quickly as possible learn about, embrace, and get better at. And it's this idea of unconscious bias within the profession of medicine. And you're one of those people who I look to and check in on and follow because I learn. And it's valuable for me because it's something that you clearly have hard-won expertise, but also expertise that comes from being a scholar and a student and having done all the work that you've done. But I want to start very high level. When I say the word unconscious bias, just so that we have shared understanding, what does that term mean? So it can mean a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. The main thing is that you, first, is not explicit. Like, it's, it's not on purpose. It's just part of how we have been educated through our life about what looks what things supposed to look like the others right so the main thing about unconscious bias is the majority of people don't do it on purpose but education actually can help unconscious bias and and one of the most important things is that everybody uh suffers it nobody's immune like myself i know i'm immune to it so I think that's the main concept. It's something that we don't do on purpose because through years of education, we have been told that apples are red and pears are green. And then when you see an apple that looks like a pear, you're confused. And then you you say, oh, this is not an apple. It's a pear. So I don't know if that's a basic concept. No, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So it... it- it follows that it's almost like a heuristic and we can think about it in terms of all the other types of cognitive biases that we have that inform our decision-making. I like the way that you frame it where it's also something that happens to everybody because that, at least for me in my learning about this is it allows us to, at least in some level, and again, I'll look to you to kind of help me if I'm doing this right, that it allows us to at least remove a little bit of judgment uh, when, when we experience this or realize that we're doing it and have more of a growth mindset of, look, I can get better at this, but this is also a journey that I'm sharing with literally everybody else. And there are bias about many, many things like, you know, like I grew up in a household of doctors. So is, I have bias about unconscious bias. Cause I know how doctors look like, but then because everybody looked like me and my family, right? Yeah. So it, it, it affects everybody. And I think it's important to, me- to mention, Mark, that, you know, a week before the paper was finally published, myself, I sent an email where I address the female physician and the email by first name. I was mortified after I saw the email. So I wrote a paper about this. I do studies about this, and I still did it. So it's just an example that doesn't matter who you are, the important part is to like understand it when it happens. And then I send an email back saying like, I'm so mortified. I'm so sorry. I loved the paper and I thought that it was as clear and concise as a paper in the medical literature can be. The title is crystal clear evaluating unconscious bias, but the way that you addressed it, because it's something that happens not just in our profession, but it can be so easily generalized. And that's what I like about having conversations like this is, this isn't unique to medicine, right? This was speaker introductions at, in this case, an international oncology conference, but it could be any conference. It could be any meeting. How, How does unconscious bias inform the way that we introduce speakers in a public setting? And for me, that was really eye-opening to 
I think also get back to this idea that this isn't just medicine. This isn't just you or me or the person next to me. We're all doing this work around evaluating our unconscious biases together. It, it, it is a process. It's an educated uh, process. And, and just to loop into why do we start Latinas in medicine is because part of the unconscious bias is that we have been educated that a doctor looks like this. And everybody who doesn't look like that then it's not a doctor. But if we work together and improving the image of that, yes, Latinas can be doctors, Latinas can be PhDs, they can do many things, then a little bit of that image, we, we shift. And then when we introduce that Latina a woman, we know like, oh, she can be a doctor, right? So that's what one thing led to the other. You shared, and I appreciated you sharing that story about how you wrote an email, which was an expression of an unconscious bias that you have, or clearly are working to overcome because you acknowledged it and, you know, work to get better. But I'm also curious to hear, given the journey that you've been on and doing all of your training, you know, at the most prestigious universities and fellowship programs and, and all of that sort of stuff. And now at this extraordinarily high level of being a thoracic oncologist in a major academic center, I am curious to hear how have the your experiences being on the receiving end of unconscious bias, what has that looked and felt like for you? Well, I have to say, Mark, that unconscious bias come then with microaggressions. Microaggressions are short comments that short comments or behaviors that kind of marginalize a group. So when I was training, I was sometimes the only Latina in the room, the only Latina in the hospital. So, and I do have an accent because English is not my first language. So then I got comments like, it really struck you and it changed who I was for many years. So comments like, oh, you're too Latina. And all honesty, I still don't know what too Latina means. I promise I wasn't walking around dancing salsa and carry like a basket full of fruit, but oh, oh, things like, oh, that dress is so yellow. You're so Latina. So that those, those, those things actually affect me so much, Mark, that I only wear black, navy and gray clothes for many years on my training. It wasn't only the yellow dress as the metaphor that I use because it's the one I remember most. Sure. But like, oh, your red shoes or, or this. And and it, because Latinas are associated with color, because and I come from Latin America and the Caribbean, we don't wear black because it's hot. It makes no sense to wear black. Yeah. Because you're going to sweat. <laughs> you're going <laughs> yeah. to so hot. Yeah. So then I'm in New Jersey and, and I get those comments. So that bias that I don't look like a doctor and then I get those microaggressions can affect many trainees. And it affected me to a point that I really kind of kept pieces on myself so I could be like accepted or be more like other people. But I couldn't be more like other people. And that took me like five years to realize that. And that's where I am now. And through the Latinas in Medicine group, we heard these stories every day of how the unconscious bias leads to microaggressions and then this young women, they feel like they don't belong in medicine. Just sort of taking on board all of those things that you just described, and you you mentioned that there was this stretch of five years before you came to a realization. And I'm curious, 
was it a progressive journey or was there that sort of eureka moment around understanding the impact of these unconscious biases and microaggressions? Because you've had these experiences and I would imagine they are probably ongoing, but you are so advanced now in being able to recognize and handle them. We're looking for those levers that all of us can take on board and people that are listening can bring on board. Was it a progressive journey for you or was there that sort of, wait a minute, in terms of learning how to handle and deal with and process this? Well, the thing of becoming my true self, that was because I was exhausted. I was so tired trying to be somebody or just hiding things from my personality. The thing about microaggressions is I, it's like going to the gym. The first time is painful. The first time you call one out, it's like, you know, the first time I just bought a Peloton bike. So like I'm in a lot of pain right now. So same concept. <laughs> um, same concept. The first time you go to the gym is painful. The first time you call out a microaggression, you're like, oh, did I do it right? And you're like mortified for days. Now, the more you feel comfortable that you belong, that you did the training, that you're a doctor, and that comments like, this morning I got a comment like, oh, but you don't look like a woman that cooks. And I was like, so how do a woman that cooks looks? Because honestly, I came around with my apron. But you know, that took me years to say that. That was this morning? Yeah. Wow. So that's I the place that we're in. This is still ongoing work for you. Yeah, but you get better at it, right? So I was yeah. able to like snap right back. But sometimes, you know, you don't have to snap right back. You call the person in front of everybody and you discuss it. But that's what I told the young women and men, that if you encounter these comments at the beginning, the most important thing is that it's nothing to do with you. Like you are who you are and you are where you are because you work hard. So expand on that a little bit. If somebody hears a term that they take on board as being a microaggression born of unconscious bias, that the first, uh, maybe not the first, but a key step in handling it is to recognize that it's actually not about you specifically. Yeah. So one of the very common microaggressions I heard from many of my mentees is like the whole phrase about where are you really, really from? Because some of my mentees are first generation or second generation Latinos and Latinas. So they're like, oh, I was born in Chicago. And people are like, oh, really? Where are you really, really from? So I, 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 I want them not to feel like like they're no belong in the United States and they're right. not part of the country because they are. Yeah. So it's just the other person trying to just not phrase things right. Like, where is your family from or where is your descent? Yeah. So I just make them like, just educate them. Don't take it personal. Educate them. And then you have educated somebody. And that person may educate somebody else. So you always can do something good out of those comments. That's a really powerful perspective to go from because there's two ways you could, there's multiple ways you could go, but certainly one is you could lash out and then we're nowhere. The approach that you're describing for me seems extraordinarily empowering in a lot of different directions, but at the same time, you're accomplishing the goal of helping the person who said it recognize that. There's a different way to do this, and we'll we'll get a lot further if we're able to go in this other direction. Yeah, and I think the more we talk about it, Mark, the more you know people are going to be conscious about it. And you know, this is a whole concept that's like, oh, you're so sensitive. But then I told my story. All these comments 
made me completely change who I was for many years. So you think like one comment is okay, but when you get 20 of them a day, and then you're also a resident trying to find out your true self as a doctor, and then you're sleep deprived, hungry, um, then you know that affects you. So yes, one comment, it is made no big deal, but when you get then so many of them that it becomes a big deal to a point that like it changes people's behavior or careers. So um, I think the whole thing is like one is one is not okay, but just take into account that that person who got a microaggression maybe got another one like 20 minutes before. Yeah. So there's a there's the in the moment impact, but there's also the cumulative impact and the two work in lockstep to cause real harm. Yeah, so just, it's not like we are oversensitive now. Is that the people that we survive for the microaggressions were finally all talking about it, uh, that it was uncomfortable. We were uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable when I was an intern. I just didn't talk about it. Yeah, so let's get into that a little bit, right? We're in a place now where, for me, the term unconscious bias was not part of my medical school or residency training, and I finished residency in 2006. Never heard it. And I don't say that to impugn my residency program or myself or the people that I worked with. That's just a fact. It was, I did not hear that term going forward. You start to hear it more and more over the last year, year and a half of being really active on social media and getting to connect with people such as yourself. I see it a lot more, but I also want to remind myself, speaking of biases, I don't want to have right. The, this, I don't want to use a cognitive bias as because I'm seeing it a lot on Twitter or a lot on Instagram or your paper that got published that we're talking about it a lot. Where, what would be your assessment as someone that we come to as an expert around this, both from your lived experiences and also as someone who now teaches about it? Where is our profession in engaging around this concept of unconscious bias? Are we really, really advanced and getting where we need to go? Are we just barely starting out or somewhere in between? I think is, I would say it's very, dependent and i i won't generalize to the entire profession sure i would say there's some schools like there's a lot of programs in some medical schools okay like there's a lot of effort like i always use the example of the ohio state with dr capers uh-huh. like he's working so hard he's made it a center of conversation he he has been a great example for many of us and i had the pleasure of meeting him many times and and being a long distance advisor, but yes, that is the Ohio State Medical School. But there's other areas there's still, you know, there's a lot of space for work. So there's I would say done, I yeah. cannot generalize to the entire sure. profession. I think there's some people who are working on it for many years before social media. Yeah. Um, but I think we have to all see it as a problem before we can actually move forward. Because I have noticed a lot of people don't see it like a problem. So, do you, yeah, so you still experience they just see pushback. They are like oversensitive. You still experience pushback on this even being a thing, that unconscious bias is even A, present, B, a problem. Yeah, so a lot of times it's like, oh, but I never have a problem. I was like, yeah, you are lucky you didn't have that problem. But patients and, you know, everything to do is for our patients. And, Unconscious bias affects our patients. Like Latino, 
uh, or Latinx patients are seen as not compliant. But sometimes it's because when you look at the back, it's because somebody tried to explain that Latin, that abuelita, that old lady, why she needed metformin with a poquito de español. And you cannot explain a treatment with a poquito de español. You need to like, you know, really speak the language or yeah. get a translator or an interpreter. So it affects our patients too. So the point, the summary is like, we know about it, but I think as a whole community and profession, we need to know that it affects every aspect of our work or patient care, how we teach and how we live every day. So with that as a really important springboard, that it is this topic of unconscious bias affects every aspect of what we do within our profession. And that makes total sense. What are the resources and the tools that you use to learn and teach from? And you also direct other people who come to you saying, I'm hearing this term. I'm, 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 I'm experiencing this. I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing your articles. I'm seeing you on Twitter and I want to learn and get better at this. Where do you direct people? What tools and resources have you found the most effective? So the AMA and WANC have good materials on unconscious bias. They also have a test that you can take about your implicit bias. So that will give you some like um, introspection or yours or yourself. You know, I, I, I do the test like many times and, and I have found that I still have some bias despite having taken the test many times. So I'll be directing to the WANC uh, website and they have the implicit bias test that you can take and then you can recognize your own bias. And that, that's the first step. And then they also have materials there. Uh, I will always two people to resources depends on what they do because there's a lot of research so if you're a basic science researcher, if you're a behavioral science researcher, the material will be changed because you cannot read all papers about unconscious bias. You wish, we, I wish, but it depends on what you do. But yeah. I, I would recommend the test. And one thing, Mark, there is a great video that it does have some strong language in YouTube and you can just search here and it's called microaggressions, mosquito, like the insect. Yeah. And explain how unconscious bias lead to microaggressions and why microaggressions are so difficult to deal with sometimes. The, and it's the, a good, entertaining video. This is good stuff. We will absolutely have links to all of this in our show notes as well. What is your sense of the appetite for people within the profession of medicine in all service lines to learn about this? Do you get pushback around it? Do you feel like it's something that's going to be a rapidly expanding part of your professional work in terms of your academic pathway and your clinical work? How, how much of this do you feel like there is a groundswell of, of, of energy? I think that until the day my mentees and students told me that they stopped encounter it or that they feel like they belong, that day is when I I may be able to, to direct my energy anywhere else. But it still happens that many of our medical students and many places in the country that are part of the represented groups, they still feel like they don't belong. And that sense is just the biggest sense of everything that's behind it, right? Then self are have unconscious bias against themselves. Like, oh, I don't belong because 
I don't look like what doctors are supposed to look. Hmm. So I think that day I may not retire, but <laughs> I may focus my energies on something else because everybody belongs in medicine. Not like there is no, this is not a private club that we have to like pay a subscription. If you work hard, you're in. So that, that would be, that would be the end goal. I think that the idea of building a profession, rebuilding a profession, reshaping this profession so that it is what you describe is really impactful. Some of the stuff that I've found really helpful for me has been the stories from patients around, right? I'm a white man. I don't just treat white men. As a hospitalist, I treat everybody except for kids. I don't take care of children. I don't take care of people in the age of 18. That's outside the scope of my practice. So full disclosure, I don't take care of kids. But in, in terms of taking care of adults, I take care of everybody. But I'm not everything to everybody. And my sense of that has increased exponentially over the past few years. And I think it's helpful. But what is it like from your perspective? What stories do you hear as a female Latina oncologist who takes care of primarily women with lung cancer? What is the resonance of having someone like you, and I use you in quotations, that like meets like when a physician who is similar in appearance, background, affect, all of those things to a patient, what is that impact as opposed to me as a white male walking into a Latina woman's room to try to help take care of her as her physician? I think that's a very important question, but you know, to be clear, we, we won't be able to see, like Latinos won't be able to see all Latino patients and uh, African-Americans will be able to see African-American patients and things like that. It's a fair point. That's not what I'm aspiring to or, or saying, but I think that the skill set is to be able to acknowledge as whoever I am, if I'm taking care of someone who is, is different from me in terms of phenotype, that we can have some shared understanding and maybe be more transparent to avoid those unconscious biases in a bi-directional manner. What I do have to like, I have experience with treating so many women with lung cancer is that they, because we have the same gender, they feel more comfortable yeah. sharing things that they may not feel comfortable with the doctors. I have patients that used to come and see me, a male, and they have months of sexual dysfunction, which is something that people don't think when they think about patients with lung cancer, right? Like you have lung cancer, you shouldn't be thinking about your sexuality, but that's as important as like drinking water. So, um, I, I noticed that, like being a woman, my women were like, oh, I have vaginal dryness. I have it for three months, but I haven't seen you in three months. So I just wanted to let you know because I felt comfortable telling you. And a few weeks ago, my patient had a vaginal discharge and she, you know, it's a second opinion. I see them know every time I see them like when things don't get don't go right or when they have to come for scans. And she was waiting for like a few uh, weeks, we have vaginal discharge because she didn't feel comfortable. So I think, you know, having a doctor that's your gender, you may feel comfortable saying things that you may not. And also with my Latinos, I noticed that some of the home remedies, they share it with me, despite they didn't share it with my resident, right? Like, oh, are you in any supplements? I was like, no, I know in any supplements. And then I come in and they're like, oh, I'm taking this and this and this and that. And you're like, oh, that explains why your liver function tests are so abnormal. So I think 
that gives patients like the opportunity to open about things that may not open with everybody. When something like that comes up, do your residents, do your fellows, do your students, do the people that you work with on the on your teams, do they see that as a learning opportunity? And I would imagine that you as as a a great teacher take those opportunities, but does does those resonate? Do they see that? Because I can think back on times where in over the course of my career in medical school and in training and all the way through my career, those opportunities have been there and some of them have been capitalized on and some of them have not. What What is the sort of sense of resonance when that dynamic that you just described about the supplements, when that comes up? Well, the first thing I, I told them something, I, I named myself the attending syndrome because I just graduated <laughs> totally, from yeah. fellowship. So yeah, the attend. Yeah. The attendant syndrome is when you have asked as a medical student or resident, do you smoke? And the patient's like, no, I never smoke. <laughs> and then the attendant comes into the room and the attendant asks, do you smoke? It's like, yeah, I have smoked one cigarette every day right. for 15 years. Attending syndrome like, is very real, no doubt. <laughs> and then your resident and fellow is like, I promise, I asked. And you're like, yeah, because I, I was there six months ago. So I hope. People remember that when they were trainees, and right. I hope to remember that 10 years from now. So the, same, so the first thing I mentioned is like, this is a tendon syndrome. I understand. <laughs> That's a good so way to like, frame it. Yes, because it has happened to me. Oh, oh, you know, and then and then I explained, well, for Latinos and Latinas, we don't call it supplements. We call it remedies. So that's how you, you can ask them is like, are you taking any any red remedies or are you taking any grandma remedies? Because uh, supplements, it doesn't really like supplementos in Spanish. We don't, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So, but if you say remedios or remedies, that makes way more sense. So even if you use a translator and you say supplements, the translator is going to say suplementos, which sounds like insure and boost. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't sound like the herbal medication that you're taking. But then if you say remedies, the translator will say remedios, and then you will get the real list. I'm going back to work in a couple of days, and I'm going to use that because I haven't been. And this is a great opportunity for me because a lot of my patients that we take care of in the hospital are of a Latino background. And it's going to be I'm, – I'm excited. I will circle back with you on Twitter and let you know what happens. But that's really helpful, and I appreciate you sharing it. Yeah, I see that you work in the very undesirable location of San Diego. <laughs> uh, so I was in San Diego for ten years. Very undesirable. I did not like it. Kidding. Loved it. I mean, I'm I I moved back to my hometown. I'm in Santa Rosa, where I've been for the last three and a half years. Okay. And again, Sonoma County in the wine country. Once again, very very undesirable. Being sarcastic, of course. It's it's a nice place to live, but the challenges are no different. You know, we, we, medicine is yeah. medicine, and it's 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 hard and important work, little, the word little actually isn't correct. Lessons like the one you just gave us is really informative. And for me, it's something that because I really do want to continue to get better at this, I'm never going to be done. And I'm going to practice medicine for hopefully a long time still. That's really helpful. We want to get to a place though, where those lessons that you describe are hardwired into how we teach. And I would imagine that there is, I'm hoping that there is more and more receptivity to that in our teaching institutions, but also for everyone that's out there practicing doing this work, going to any sort of conference and they're going to introduce someone circling back to the paper that you wrote and paying attention to the unconscious bias around how we might introduce somebody. I, I think it's very important. And, you know, one of the things about behind all of this is the beauty of diversity. 
And well, now I'm in Wisconsin, so there's a lot of cheese here. So you cannot eat the same cheese every day. You you can try, but after a few months, you're like, really? Cheddar again? <laughs> so, <laughs> but if you're able to eat different types of cheese, you really enjoy it, right? So people get cheese boards. They don't get one cheese block. <laughs> so that's the beauty of diversity. This is such a Wisconsin You are meeting metaphor. me where I live with the cheese analogy. <laughs> Thank you. This is this is just Wisconsin analogy. I just made it up. I so. love it. <laughs> it resonates in California, I promise you. So you want a cheese board, right? Because it's so good. You get yes, to have I some want manchego oh. and you get to get some uh, goat cheese and you get so that's the beauty of diversity. You don't get tired because we are different. Oh. And then it just makes it so much better. So if we all see the world like a cheese board, <laughs> it would be a better place. Yes, please. Because <laughs> when you come out, someday you'll come to California for a conference or something like that. And I'm going to send you a list of the cheese options that you must hit when you come out here. Point Reyes, Blue, Humboldt, Fog. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, uh, the, the, yeah. the Mount Tam Triple Cream. Oh, too good. So it's this, this whole thing is that we are so beautiful. And yeah. like, I I love, so I marry a North Dakota boy. He's Ukrainian okay. and half Native American. But he was born and raised in North Dakota. And it's just the beauty of like having pierogies for Thanksgiving. It's just, for me, it's like, yes, let's do this. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's, just, it's, it's the whole beauty of being different and exploring things that, you know, everybody likes new things. So that's diversity. Diversity is new in medicine. Like back, uh, you know, 170 years, women were not allowed to be doctors. Yeah. And then we have more and more diversity. So those are new things. Like invite the new people in. It's like a new TV show, right? You like new stuff. We, well, we all like new things. That's why people are waiting online on Black Friday because they like new things. And I would say, though, too, that you're helping create some of that space. And I do want to just recognize the hashtag Latinas in medicine, because on social media, we do a lot of learning and a lot of interacting. And that is a space that, you know, the, the name belies the diversity. We can all put, you know, join the chats that you do and come to that hashtag. What has that space been like for you? So I have to tell the story how to this started. So one of my closest friends, Carolina, she's faculty here at the university. And Brianna is a medical student um, in Columbia. And I remember being in the Lictico in the winter in Rochester. And I was like, I'm so tired of people telling me that, you know, they don't find a community, that they're the only Latinas. So I remember texting them and I'm like, you know, go, let's just go and do this. Let's just create a community. And um, that was January of this year. And we're like, It was okay, January so of this year, really? Yes. Wow. And then we start getting messages. We build a community and we have people that are also, because we cannot do this, only Latinas. We are 1.8% of all physicians in the U.S. We don't even make it to the 2% yet. So we need allies like you, allies like other, like men and other groups in medicine. And it has been a great opportunity, Mark, because it has built community. These Latinas feel like they can be part. They can feel like they're, they can do it and they don't we don't have to be all close together like i can be very inspired by dr jenny 
I'm Ben Cardino. She is the chair of muscular radiology and pen and inspired by her, but she is very far away from me and I never have met her in person. And I'm very inspired by Dr. Uh, Monica Gutierrez, who is in Texas and she's also senior to me. She just so ran a whole, marathon, I think, right? I know. She just runs. <laughs> <laughs> And you see, like, people think Latinas don't run. Yes, we do. And so is the whole community online is to, like, yes, there's people like you that may not be in your neighborhood, but there are people, like, achieve things like you. And and that's the whole goal of the community, that we we, we feel like we belong. We find people that are to levels of taking their end caps to point of people that are chairs of the division. And... And one of the challenges is like I look around and I didn't see anybody like me, but now we have the community on Twitter and you can go there and see many Latinas doing many amazing things in medicine. I love the way you described it and I love the names that you mentioned because I follow all of them. So it feels like you have created a place that's really inclusive for anyone that wants to be a part of it and participate in the chats and follow on social media that it's all there because the... I just think the way you've framed it is really intelligent and it's really inviting. And I think, I think that that's really great. Where do people find this? If they want to connect with you, if they want to follow Latinas in medicine, where do people go to, to find you? So our community name is hashtag Latinas in medicine. So the name includes the hashtag. Um, and it's just the whole thing of putting it all together and registering the hashtag. Um, and it can be used for anything. They can just find us on Twitter. We have merchandise. I know, it's so excited. So we have stickers. I'm going to send you some, Mark. We have stickers. We have ribbons. So right now in the Society of Radiology, we have two ambassadors, Dr. Martin and Dr. Teresa. They're both there. They're both Latinas, and they have Latinas in medicine ribbons that you can put in your badge. And that way you can like identify each other. It's like, hey, how are you? That's so great. There's wow. nothing better than merch. I love merch. So good for you. <laughs> yes. So it's just the ribbons. I think it was like, a great idea for us because one more thing is like Latinos, we come, we're a big group that has been glump and like one big group, but we're very different. So there are Afro-Latinos that have more like Afri African descent. There's some Latinos that have blonde hair and blue eyes. So the whole thing is that you can sometimes not identify who's who. And having this ribbon, we allow people to connect. This is wonderful. We're going to have links to all of this great stuff, yeah. all of these resources that you've given us. They'll all be in the show notes. So definitely, you know, if you're if you're if you're curious and you want to engage with the unconscious bias, self-assessment you can do, the YouTube clip that you mentioned, and then all of these great people to connect with on social media. That's all going to be in our show notes. NJ, this was awesome. I really appreciate you taking some time and sharing your journey and your vision and all of these extraordinary tools to help us on this work because it's longitudinal work. And so for you to come and, and help us on that and really provide some rocket fuel for that journey is very, very special. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mark. It was wonderful talking with you. It was so easy. So I like it. Well, that's Very great. Nice. <laughs> then you'll have to have you come back and we'll talk some more. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. 
Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.